Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with, by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Eric. Let's uh, pray to ask God's help as we think about the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its instruction. Thank you for your help as we've thought through this series about what it means. We pray that as we uh, look at this passage that it might instruct us, encourage us, shape us, no matter what kind of week we've had, no matter where we are in our journey of faith, that uh, this would be a meaningful time because the God of the universe, God who loves us, is speaking to us through his word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brett McCracken is a senior editor at the Gospel Coalition. He's written a number of helpful books over the years, uh, but one of those books is called Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Ca Challenge of Christian Community. The first chapter in that book is titled Dream Church, and McCracken writes this. If you could dream up the perfect church, what would it look like? On days when I'm sitting in my real church and feeling frustrated by something, I sometimes daydream about my ideal church, the one where I would feel completely understood, where my perspectives would be valued, where my gifts and passions would flourish. I dream about a church I would always be proud and never embarrassed to call home, a church so amazing that any non-Christian who visited would never want to leave." End quote. McCracken then goes on through, uh, in, through, through uh, what his dream church would look like in quite some detail. If you were to look at the book, everything from the look and the layout of the building to the church's theology, its mercy ministry, community outreach, what a typical Sunday would look like at this church, the discipleship and community life. 
And I imagine each of us could do the same thing. We could easily come up with our own version of a dream church. But after going through all those details of his dream church, McCracken admits that he's a bit disgusted with how easy it was for him to describe in such detail his hypothetical dream church. He says it's so easy because that's how we've been conditioned to think. We live and breathe in a have-it-your-own-way consumerism, which is exactly the mindset that some then bring to their approach to church. We're happy or relatively happy with a church that's catering to our desires, that's ticking off our preferences. But if a church ceases to do that, we start getting itchy feet and looking around at other church options in the area. And that's not to say there aren't sometimes legitimate reasons for leaving a church, joining another church, but it is to say that a consumerist approach to church can be quite toxic and bad for our spiritual health. That if we approach church through the lens of wishing that that or this was different or longing for a church that, quote, gets me, a church that meets me where I'm at, frankly, we'll never commit anywhere. Listen to how the 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon somewhat humorously put it. He said, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. We've been thinking through this sermon series not about a concept of a dream church, but rather God's idea of church as presented in the New Testament. We've seen how the church is a living temple of living stones, that's us, built on a foundation of Jesus. We've thought about how, in the words of Don Carson, based on all the differences that can exist between us and do exist between us, that the church really is a group of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. In Ephesians, we saw how Paul presents the the unity in this diversity of the church as the grand witness to the world of the beauty and the truth of the gospel. But today we're going to think about perhaps the dominant image used for the church in the New Testament and one that pushes hard against the consumerist attitude that we might be tempted to bring to our consideration of church. That in the words of the 1970s R&B group Sister Sledge, who apparently were from Philadelphia, I didn't know that, we are family. This is us, we're family. And there are a number of places that we could go in the New Testament to think about this, but we're going to think about it mostly from uh, Romans 12, 9 to 16, kind of the middle section of the passage that Eric read for us, a passage that doesn't actually mention the word family, but will help us understand the church's family and also importantly tease out some of the implications of that. So for our sermon in a sentence today, if you want to go with something really simple, you can stick with Sister Sledge. We are family, or to put it slightly longer, the body of Christ is characterized by revolutionized relationships. We're going to think about this in three parts. The church is family. Secondly, love in the family. Thirdly, growing in love. The the body of Christ is characterized by revolutionized relationships. So first, the church's family. Look with me at the first sentence in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Paul here brings together two Greek words that would have been understood by his original audience as family words. First of all, love one another, or as the NIV puts it, be devoted to one another. 
uh, translates a Greek word that would normally have been used to describe the natural affection uh, between relatives, and particularly the love of a parent for a child. And the other Greek word he uses here is one I've already used, Philadelphia, brotherly love or affection. And both of those words originally applied to blood relationships in a family, but Paul here reapplies them to the tender, warm affection that should unite the members of the family of God. Now, Paul doesn't come up with the idea of the church being a family uh, himself. He's simply building off what the Lord Jesus himself had said. Listen to this incident recorded uh, in Jesus' ministry uh, by the gospel writer Mark, Mark 3, 31 to 35. His, that is Jesus' mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, right before this, Mark has told us that Jesus' earthly family, on account of everything that was going on in his ministry, actually believed Jesus to be out of his mind, and so they tried to seize him. They tried to take control of him. And you can guess that that incident's in the back of Jesus' mind uh, when, this, when they turn up here, his earthly family, turn up in the scene, and Jesus asked the question of those who were gathered there, well, who, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And he answers his own question, those who do the will of God. That is, Jesus says, my ultimate family consists of people who don't try to take charge of me, but who let me take charge of them. That when you acknowledge Jesus as your king, you become his brother or sister. This was an astonishing statement for Jesus to make to a highly ethnocentric, patriarchal, family-centered culture. Jesus was telling us, that if you're a Christian believer, you have brothers and sisters and a family, regardless of your physical family status, your race status, your cultural status. As Russell Moore put it, every Christian's not called a marriage, but every Christian is part of a family. In fact, as a follower of Jesus, you have the one family that ultimately counts because it's the only family that ultimately lasts, lasts into eternity. So the Christian understanding of family has to go far beyond the sort of me, my husband or wife, and the kids. And yet the Western church has historically been pretty bad at demonstrating, modeling this, failing to present a vision of the church family as anything remotely as compelling or as important as the nuclear family. By and large, the church has perpetuated the American dream of married with children as the ultimate goal. But for a, a member of God's family, that kind of dream cannot be the ultimate. To make it so is to commit idol idolatry. And human families, of course, they're made in the image of God. God himself is a trinity and therefore a family. So human, human family life, of course, is still important, needs to be cultivated. Jesus is just saying here, it's not the ultimate. The family that Jesus points to in Mark 3 means laying aside our own personal kingdoms and making our participation in the household of God beyond our nuclear families a massive priority. Now, before we look at some of the specifics of the family life that Paul gets into, just think for a moment about just the immediate implications of the church being the family of God. And it's pretty logical because each 
of us have God as our Heavenly Father for Christians and Jesus as our elder brother, then we each, by definition, have a sibling relationship with everybody else who says God is my Heavenly Father and Jesus is my elder brother. So as the saying goes, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And that's true in the church too. In the church, whether you like it or not, we're brothers and sisters. And just as in the case as in a biological family, the members of the church family are to have a common life together. That's why there are so many one another's in the New Testament, just as there is here in Romans 12, verse 10. For any of you who have been through the Membership Explored class, you may remember that after we talk about the importance of belief in terms of what it means to be a member, we move on to what does it mean to belong. And I give out a, a handout with a list of all these one another's, some of which are on the screen. And you see, the one another's in the Bible are not suggestions for the Christian life. They're commands for our family life. The belonging to the church is always going to increase our obligations and decrease our independence. So there's nothing we do to become family. It's God who has made us family through the gospel of his son. But we get the privilege and responsibility of living out the reality. Which brings us to our second point, the privilege and reality, responsibility of love in the family. Look again at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. 2003, the sociologist uh, Sigmund Bauman came out with a book entitled Liquid Love. And the thesis of the book was well portrayed by the picture on the cover. It was of a, a beach with a large heart drawn in the sand, but with the tide coming in. And the picture therefore suggested a type of love that was rather temporary. The heart in the sand would be soon washed away, leaving no trace that it had ever been there. And in his book, Bauman uh, states how we, we all want relationships. We want the togetherness and companionship that, the, that we bring. We, we want to express and receive love. But at the same time, a lot of us don't really want the burden that comes with commitment. We don't like to be trapped. We don't want to be caught up in other people's problems. And that, Bauman says, is the tension that we feel. We want closeness with other people so that we can have a sense of community and belonging, but we want to, in a sense, keep our distance so that people don't engulf us, don't impose upon us. And so to describe what he claims we want, Bauman coined this phrase, liquid love. We want our love to be able to flow where we want it to flow, rather than it being pinned down and set in place. Now, there are countless places in the Bible that instruct us as Christians to be loving people. However, rather than being a liquid love. New Testament family love is what we might call, by contrast, concrete love. And Romans 12 is perhaps one of the best places to see that the firm shape and contours of the love the Bible calls us to. Later in the passage that Eric read for us, Paul commands us even to love our enemies. There's no liquid love to loving your enemies. That's a very firm, concrete kind of thing. But here in verses 9 to 16, Paul's focus is specifically on the place of love within the family of God. So look at those verses again with me, 9 to 16. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Paul's recipe here for love in the church family really has 12 components. If I, if I was to list them, sincerity, discernment, affection, honor, enthusiasm, patience, generosity, hospitality, goodwill, sympathy, harmony, humility. It's, it's, it's a lot. But as you read through Paul's commands here, it's not the sort of passage where you're necessarily scratching your head and saying, I don't know what Paul means by that. We understand the what of these components. But the trickier question is, is the how. How practically do we put these aspects of concrete love into action? We don't have time, obviously, to look at each one of Paul's commands, but let's look at least at a few. Paul's first command here, let love be genuine. Actually, it has to do with what we saw last week in uh, what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. So literally here, he says, let our love be unhypocritical. That is to be sincere and genuine in the sense that we're not to be phony in our, de- in our dealings with one another. We're not to be polite and helpful and apparently warm on the outside while on the inside we're, we're inwardly seething and despising the other person. And that's actually really important for us to note because within the church, you know, a culture of niceness can easily come in that with, in which a veneer of smiles and pleasantness cover over a spirit of backbiting and gossip and prejudice. That instead we're to practice sincere love in which we love one another enough to be direct about problems and sins, not only in one another, but in ourselves, that we're going to be honest about those things too. So let love be genuine, Paul says. Or what about the command in the second part of verse 10 to outdo one another in showing honor? Outdo one another in showing honor. What would that look like in our lives? Struck me uh, thinking about this during the week that fulfilling this command of Paul's surely includes seeking to show honor to those that others might fail to honor for whatever reason. Mentioned a few weeks ago a book I've I've been reading on the church for this series called The Compelling Community. It's uh, written by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop, pastors at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., which is a, a conservative, theologically reformed Southern Baptist congregation just six blocks from from the, the nation's capital. But in one of those chapters, Dunlop describes how at the time of their writing this book in 2013, uh, the verdict of not guilty had just been handed down in the murder trial of George Zimmerman. Zimmerman, as you may recall, had been accused of racial bias in the shooting of an unarmed African-American youth. And while the event and verdict were hotly debated in D.C. and nationwide, Dunlop noted that for many in his majority white congregation, The event just didn't seem to be a big deal. There was even some confusion in the church as to why it was um, drawing such widespread attention. However, for a substantial number of African-American members of their congregation, the case was profoundly disturbing. The issue surrounded the question of racial profiling, and many of these brothers and sisters reported incidents where they perceived they'd been unfairly suspected, unfairly treated, unfairly targeted, because of the color of their skin. 
And Dunlop wrote that the common reaction that he heard from this portion of the congregation was that, therefore, this whole incident left them feeling much less safe than they'd felt before. And he then in the book writes this. As a pastor, what should I do? I'm certainly not in a position to opine on the correctness of the jury opinion. But if you think that the most helpful response for my church is one of silence, you would be mistaken. Silence would merely confirm the concern that, yes, our church body has no idea what it is like to live in Washington, D.C. as an African-American. That, yes, I do, in fact, believe that everyone in our church shares my own white middle-class existence. Silence would hardly be, quote, outdoing one another in showing honor. So in this case, our congregation prayed for all those left feeling less safe because of this and other public incidents, that we would understand each other, help each other, and ultimately put our hope in a God who offers us perfect security in Christ. But rather than address the case itself, we prayed about its impact, which was unmistakable, significant, and largely hidden to many in our congregation." End quote. Love in the family means seeking to outdo one another in showing honor. You know, as Paul lays out the different components of concrete love here, it struck me that in a sense that they all really are intricately interconnected, that as you and I grow in our understanding of what it means to be members of the family of God and part of the, of the church family, and in turn, the Spirit's transforming our hearts and minds so that these components of concrete love will all be manifesting themselves all of them in an increasing measure. And again, the challenge isn't to understand what Paul's talking about here, the what of his commands. It's the how. How do we practice these things? It seemed to me that obedience to these commands would mean that we find ourselves more and more sharing our stuff with one another, more and more sharing our hearts with one another, our lives with one another, sticking with one another through the hard parts of family life as we embrace the inevitable pain of growing up together, that the family ties of, of the church would start to buck the prevailing ethos in our society that liquid love's enough. Wesley Hill, in his book, Spiritual Friendship, pushes back against the sort of relationship between Christians that is easily opted in and opted out of according to personal whims and preferences. And he makes a strong biblical case for how brothers and sisters in Christ must be more strongly bonded than that. And Hill is a same-sex attracted Christian who's committed to celibacy. And he writes that because of that, the importance of family-like community is particularly pronounced for him, where he's not going to get married. Here's what he says, what I and others like me are yearning for isn't just a weekly night out or a circle of, of people with whom to go on vacation. We need something more. We need people who know what time our plane lands, who will worry about us when we don't show up at the time we said we would. We need people we can call and tell about that funny thing that happened in the hallway after class. We need the assurance that come hell or high water, a few people will stay with us, loving us in spite of our faults and caring for us when we're down, end quote. And you see, liquid love shies away from such responsibilities. Liquid love would have us be wary of overcommitting because we don't want to get drawn in more than we want with people starting to expect things from us. But that's not the case with the concrete love that's to characterize us as God's family. That the church is the place where we're always able, whoever we are, to find supportive relationships, where there'll always be this ongoing care and concern for each other. 
Liquid Love wants some of that without the commitment, the benefits, without the cost, but it doesn't work that way. A true community and true commitment go hand in hand as an expression of this concrete love in the family. And that brings us to our final point, growing in love. Look again at how Paul closes out these components of concrete love in verse 16. He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And Paul here actually is coming back around to how he started the larger passage that Eric read for us. So uh, look at, at the beginning of that passage, verse 3. He says, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul wants us to see that at the heart of being part of the church family, and key to love in this family is humility. As we heard in our confession this morning, 1 Corinthians 13, one of the things about love is love is not proud. Humility. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, Paul says, but to think with sober thinking. And then to that he adds, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I don't know if you've ever read that and thought, what does what's Paul actually mean by that? I mean, it almost sounds like Paul's saying, you know, God's kind of gone around with a ladle and measured out different amounts of faith to each person, and so we should think of ourselves according to how much faith he just happened to give us. But if that's what Paul's saying there, it kind of raises some weird questions like, well, what exactly should I think about myself if I've been given a lot of faith? And what should I think about myself if I've given, been given a little and how on earth do I know how much faith I was given to begin with? But I think there's actually another way of understanding Paul's words, which make much more sense in the context here, that the measure of faith isn't, it's not like a measuring jug that God fills up to different levels. Rather, it's a standard by which we're to measure ourselves. And it's the same standard or measure for all of us, because it's kind of like setting your watch in accordance with the standard of Eastern Standard Time. Because here Paul is saying that we're to set our thinking in accordance with a standard, a measure, and the standard or measure, he says, is faith, or more precisely, I think we could say the faith, namely the gospel of the cross of Jesus that Paul has spent the first 11 chapters of Romans laying out. That the gospel's the measure by which we each should be evaluating ourselves and evaluating how well we're loving. It's when we measure ourselves according to the standard of the gospel that we start to get an accurate picture of ourselves and in turn how well we're loving one another. So how might that actually, actually work? Well, think for a moment about Paul's command we looked at earlier where he calls for our love to one another to be sincere and genuine. I mean, I think all of us, if we're honest, that's a challenge. It's a challenge for our love not to be hypocritical and to be sincere. How, how can we claim to love unlovely people who frankly we don't like and then still, but still be sincere? I don't know if you've thought about this much, but I don't think Paul's saying here that you should never do a loving deed until you actually feel loving toward the person. Rather, I think he's saying we should do loving deeds regardless, but as we do so, we're constantly thinking about the measure. We think with sober judgment about ourselves, measuring ourselves against the standard of the gospel, thereby recognizing the need to work on our hearts 
to put aside condescension and irritability and bias and selfishness. In other words, as we're seeking to do acts of love, at the same time, according to the measure, we're constantly repenting, asking God to soften our hearts through the, the recollection of everything that Jesus has done for us. So here's how that might work in your life and in mine. Sober thinking about ourselves reminds us that we're not loved by God because we're lovely. We're not loved by God because we made ourselves worthy of his love. We're loved because Jesus died for us when we were unlovely in order to make us lovely. Now, if you're able to think about that while you're serving a person who you find unlovely, then you find it starts to bring about a transformation in your heart where you're saying, Lord, I was so much more unattractive to you than this person is to me right now. And yet you were tortured in my place. You were killed in my place. When you died on the cross, you gave up your whole life for me. And all you're asking of me here right now is to give up some of my time and effort for this person. Jesus, if you could do that for me, I can do that for her or for him. I don't think a person who might be generally moral and nice in this world, but who doesn't get the gospel, I don't think a person, that person can do what Paul's talking about here. Because they have to, in the end, choose between two inadequate alternatives. Either phony love, being nice to people that you dislike, or sporadic love, where it's kindness, but only toward the people that you like. But by measuring yourself against the gospel and then applying the gospel, you show love while you're at the same time repenting. And as you're repenting, your heart's being softened as you serve, and your love is sincere toward God at that moment, and it's becoming more and more sincere toward the person as you're applying the gospel. And through all of that, you grow in love body of Christ is characterized by revolutionized relationships. Last night I drove to the airport to, uh, to meet this guy on the screen on his layover in Philadelphia on his way to Dublin in Ireland. I never quite realized until last night how few places there are to sit at the airport unless you go through security. So here we are sitting on a wall at the designated smoking area outside Terminal B. Pretty glamorous, huh? Colm's a good friend. Our friendship uh, goes back to when we were both living in Dublin. We now both live here in the States, but rarely get to see each other. And I figure most of us would do something similar to this for a friend we don't get to see very often. But if I'm honest, the reason for driving to the airport and sitting on a wall outside Terminal B and praying together there as airport employees were walking back and forth on their break, it goes way, way deeper than friendship because Colm's my brother. He's my brother in Christ. He's family. Jesus has revolutionized my relationship with him. At one time we were part of the same church and that interaction, that love radically changed our relationship so that Colm and I are going to be family forever. Just as you and I, as followers of Jesus, are now family, and we're going to be family forever. So get used to it. We're family. The body of Christ is characterized by revolutionized relationships. This is us. 
Let's pray. Father, all of us have our dream churches, our ideal vision of what church should be like, and then reality kicks in and we find that it's a lot harder than we thought. And you give us commands that seem out of reach. And you call us to love as brothers and sisters those that in our honest moments we find it hard to love at times. And yet you have not left us resourceless. You have given us the gospel. You have given us the grand vision of what you have done for us, loving the unlovely, giving your son to die for us in order that you might make us lovely. Lord, I think all of us know that as a, lo as a local church here, well, with all the good things going on, we still have much to do in order to grow in this area, to go deeper in our love for one another, to really be genuine and sincere and unhypocritical with one another, to care deeply for one another, whether, whether we're married or single, young or old, whatever our context. But we need your help by your spirit through the gospel to do that, and so help us, we pray. For we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.